On this episode of the Vincast, I chat with Jim White, Technical Director for Cloudy Bay Vineyards in Marlborough, New Zealand. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And uh, of course, I would like to thank everyone for listening to uh, the latest episodes, uh, for reaching out and letting me know that they've enjoyed them. Um, but also, I'd really like to thank people for supporting my wine brand, uh, Vino Intrepido, which I started a few years ago. Uh, it's uh, it's awesome to see people. Uh, really getting interested in this uh, exploration I'm on uh, as far as the possibility of Italian varieties here in Victoria and uh, particularly with everything going on at the moment, especially around COVID-19, um, it is really appreciated to get that support uh, for people to try something a bit different. So if you'd like to find out more information about my wines, uh, you can find it on the website, vinointrepido.com, uh, and you can follow me on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Vino Intrepido. Uh, someone who actually did reach out um, uh, with interest uh, for my wines uh, and did buy some wines, in fact, for his, his father's birthday, um, was Jim White, who I used to work with way back when I started uh, the main part of my wine career at Domaine Chandon in the Yarra Valley. Uh, and Jim is now based down in New Zealand in the Marlborough region. Uh, it was really awesome to catch up with him, uh, find out um, kind of what what brought him to working in viticulture uh, and where um, since our paths sort of separated where he he has um you know the the journey he's been on so i hope you enjoy the episode please do stick around till the end to find out how you can um, learn a bit more about um, cloudy bay vineyards uh but until then i'll see you on the other side jim thank you very much for joining me um down in uh, in blenheim or marlborough um and and thanks for being a guest on the vincast James, it's my pleasure. We obviously haven't seen each other in person for a long time, but uh, it's good to catch up. It is. Um, um, if I didn't mention it in the intro, um, Jim and I met whilst working um, initially at Domaine Chandon, uh, and then at, at some point Jim shifted over to Cape Mantell, and then uh, in the subsequent years relocated down to Cloudy Bay, where he's now the technical director. You know, I think back when... Back when I met you, you were the, the, the vineyard manager or the, the viticulture, the, the, the vineyard, what, what were you back then? No, no, I was just the, I was just the vineyard manager at Shandong, just looking after the Greenpoint vineyard. Right. You And, and you were reporting to Dan Illich, wasn't it? No, no. Uh, Dan replaced me when I left. Uh, Bernie right. Wood back Bernie, in those days. Bernie Wood, of course. And I just interviewed um, his father-in-law for the podcast. Fred oh, Fred. Yep. Yep. No, I saw Bernie. Obviously, we all caught up. Uh, obviously, the, the sad passing of Tony Jordan, who was a great mentor and uh, yes. um, colleague of, of many of us. So I, I caught up with all those guys back in, uh, uh, when was that? That was back in September, October last year for Tony's funeral. Mm. Very, very sad and incredible impact on, uh, on the Australian and, and New Zealand and Chinese industry as well. 
Indian, the yeah. UK industry, yeah, wine, wine making around the world, really. And uh, a pretty big reason why, you know, we drink so much sparkling wine in Australia. Um, normally, I do start the episode by asking my guests if they can remember the earliest interaction they had with wine that potentially set them on a path to um, working in the wine industry. Do you, was, was there a, a particular incident or um, a wine that did it? There was, there was actually, it was, um, I went off to Melbourne University up in the Dookie campus um, back in the sort of mid 1990s to study agriculture. I wanted to become a self-sufficient hippie and, you know, buy a plot of land up in Byron Bay and escape from um, modern society. But uh, during my second year, um, uh, a bunch of the guys who were a year ahead of me were doing their industry placement and Mitchelton Winery was close and uh, we had a, we're having a, you know, probably a beer soaked barbecue um, one Saturday night and one of the guys bought a bottle of um, 1991 Mitchelton Reserve Cabernet and uh, opened that at the barbecue and literally just, um, you know, it was that sort of epiphanal wine moment where I think I realised I was a pretty scruffy looking dude. I had dreadlocks and a scruffy beard and whatnot. But um, uh, I think the thing about wine that really excited me was it was about, well, particularly about grape growing was that consumers never got to see the grapes and we just spent a whole lot of time learning about correctly shaped, you know, apples with the right colour. And if they weren't 70% coloured, then the supermarkets wouldn't buy them. And, you know, sort of despite what they might have tasted like. Whereas the thing about wine is, is that no one ever gets to see the grapes. They only really care about what's in the bottle and what it tastes like. Um, and it was a bit of a that don't judge a book by its cover sort of moment for me. And, um, yeah, ploughed into grape growing at that stage and... You know, here I am 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, actually. I mean, like, if people do eat table grapes um, or, I suppose, you know, um, raisin sultanas, whatever the case may be, the, they, the, the difference between table grapes and wine grapes could not be more pronounced. So, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, it is, it is sort of a, a product. It's a commodity. And so people probably don't appreciate you know, what the raw material is. So, yeah. And I guess being kind of that self-sufficiency sort of thing and something that's so vitally important to um, the wine industry, particularly in terms of viticulture is, you know, sustainability and because not only is that good for the environment, but it also um, results generally uh, in better quality grapes, which make better wine. Absolutely. um, You grew up in the Yarra Valley, correct? Yeah, just outside. I grew up in Baronia, so not far outside the Yarra. Yeah, right. Um, and we, we was wine uh, something that was important in your family? Were you were you was your were your parents wine drinkers, or was it something? Yeah, that you, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were, and I, I think <clears throat> now we'd had many tours around Victoria. I'd been to, you know, I remember going to Taltani as an eight or ten year old collecting corks, and you know, Dad used to race up to Brown Brothers whenever we'd go up to the King and Ovens um, on holidays to to buy wine. There was always wine in the house, um, you know, often in a box, but, you know, more, more, I guess a lot in bottles as well. And dad had a wine rack outside in the garage. And so it was always very much part of the sort of family life. Um, although I didn't have any interest in it whatsoever at, um, you know, even as a teenager and, you know, even into my early twenties, uh, well, what you, what were you tw- into 21, I discovered wine. Sorry. What were you into? Um, if you end up as a scruffy-haired hippie? Um, look, I ironically left high school wanting to do graphic design and uh, it was after a 
and, and working in advertising and it was after I did an internship at an agency and made, a, made some money and then took a trip to Queensland to see a girlfriend who, like many Victorians at the time, families moved to the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast and it was on the way up there that I sort of got into the hills behind Byron Bay and realised that I actually didn't want to work, you know. You know the dream of the, uh, the terrace house in Albert Park and driving the convertible Saab really wasn't for me and I, I wanted to get back and get my fingers dirty and start growing stuff. Yeah, right. So, so this was something that you wanted to have as a career or something that you, it was just sort of what you wanted to do personally and, and sort of live that way? Yeah, I think it was just a, I wanted to learn how to grow stuff well enough that I could become, you know, sort of that, get into that self-sufficiency thing. I used to read a lot of, you know, Earth Garden magazine and, and uh, that sort of stuff. And I guess that um, along the way I realised that I probably would need to earn enough money to buy some land and therefore probably needed a reasonable job. And so that's when I, I was, I studied a year of horticulture in Melbourne and then thought I needed to get serious about it. And so I decided to go and do the ag science degree up at Dookie and, um, and you know, at that, that point I discovered wine, I guess, but I was always into the sort of horticultural stuff up there, orchards and vegetables and, uh, you know, how, you know, looking at that sort of uh, probably less conventional forms of agriculture when you had guys doing dairy farming and beef and sheep and all that sort of conventional farming stuff. Yeah, right. So it, it, this interaction with uh, the bottle of Mifflinton wine um, made you kind of um, perk up and notice wine and, and, and what was sort of the, the pathway from there? How did you sort of, um, did you continue your studies or did you shift into more viticulture studies? Yeah, I guess I just, I streamed myself into viticulture at that stage in the same course. And then, um, and actually ironically, I got my first proper vineyard job at Mitchelton. Uh, I think that was the pruning season in 96. Um, Worked there for three or four months before getting my first full-time job, which was at the Mount Helen Vineyard, which was a sort of one of the original cool climate vineyards in Melbourne up in the Strathbogie Ranges. and I guess by that stage, you know, I was drinking wine quite a bit. I was trying to kick around the cellars at, at Mitchelton and learn a bit about the winemaking process, um, learn a bit more at uni. We did, you know, had a few tastings and um, it was actually during, I think my third year at uni, uh, we did a sort of wine course and um, ironically tasted my first uh, my first champagne there. And it happened to be, a, a, I think it was an 86 Moet vintage and I went oh I understand why everyone gets sparkling wine now and champagne why people get excited about it and then we did a lineup it was that sort of classic Patrick Island um, tasting that you do where you taste one really cheap bottle one medium price bottle and one expensive bottle and um, you know the I remember smelling this wine just going oh my god this is like having some mind-bending um, almost synesthetic experience of of limes and passion fruit and bell peppers and they took the bag off the um off the bottle and it was the 1994 cloudy Bay sauvignon blanc um and i remember it very vividly um not so much i mean the wine was incredibly um striking and and sort of captivating but um i knew the label and it was a label because it, it had been the bottle that it was in the fridge at home for years um it was only ever consumed on mum's birthday or on christmas day and it was mum's favorite wine um, wow. and sort of some sort of irony is, and I found myself in the driver's seat at the winery today. Um, and actually I remember when I got my first, I got the job at, at Domaine Chandon and I called mum and dad and I said, Oh, look, you know, I've got the job at Chandon. It's really exciting. And I went and, you know, mum and dad were 
Yeah, they were pretty excited. And then I said, and guess what? I can now buy Cloudy Bay at staff discount. Well, the roar went up in the background and you can imagine the... So, uh, yeah, that's a sort of the, the ironic journey I found my way here after, uh, after many, many years. Yeah, well, uh, you know, obviously that, there, there's always um, some lovely perks um, to, to working within, within a winery. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I suppose it is now, considering that you have actually ended up in, in, at, at Cloudy Bay, it is uh, particularly prescient. Um, you know that it was your mum's favourite wine, uh, and of course, you know it is like that label is so iconic. You know um, that amazing photo that Kevin Judd took way back in the eighties. You know, and and it is one of those labels that has and probably will never change. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's had a little bit of a tweak in recent years, but the the mountain range is all important for us. It's um, it's such an iconic view, and I don't think people get it so much until they visit and you literally stand yep. on the, the deck of our of our hospitality building and, and just look straight at those hills and that and was definitely exactly. that was definitely the case for me when mm-hmm. i went down i think it was in 2009 for pinot or cloudy bay just being able to look up and look at that mountain range and also the wither hills range as well yeah um because you know it, it, it's just so captivating and that you know it, it's i can't think of many better places to to, to be working <laughs> Especially now, no, it was, now in isolation, it's like, geez, at least if I was in isolation, I'd have something nice to look at when I look out the window. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, we're not in isolation here, luckily. Yeah, luckily. Yeah. Um, okay, so so first vineyard gig was um, working for Mitchelton. Um, was it? W- did you kind of think of viticulture specifically? That's what I want to do, or I mean, you talked about kind of you know, knocking around in the cellars back then to sort of, uh, you know, learn a little bit about the winemaking. We, we, did you have much interest in, in the, the sort of the production side um, in, in the cellars? Oh, I guess I did, but I didn't really have a great deal of exposure to it. And then, you know, it was just sort of learning about wine. I mean, we used to go to all sorts of tastings and taste everything. And, you know, I had a couple of friends and we used to have a sort of Thursday night bring a random bottle and oh, they were all vineyard guys too. And so we were trying to educate ourselves about the world of wine, mostly focusing on Australian stuff at the time. Um, and then after Mitchelton went up to the Strathbogie Ranges and it got taken over by Mildara Blast and my position became redundant basically. And so I happened to have one of those sort of fortuitous cellar door stop-ins um, at a little winery that at the time was up in, in Seville in the Yarra and it was Oak Ridge Estate. And, uh, and they were going through the big expansion where they built their new winery down in Coldstream and uh, spoke to the assistant winemaker there. And he said, oh, look, we're, you know, we're looking for a vineyard manager. So I sort of hounded the winemaker, um, got an interview and, and got the job down there. And that was, no, that was January 98. And actually did the, the one and only vintage I properly worked in a cellar was was the 98 vintage at Oak Ridge. Um, all the vineyards at the time basically were looking at, the vast majority of them were only one year old, so they didn't really require a great deal of care over their vintage. So I got to do a few things that, you know, health and safety back then wasn't exactly what it is today, but, um, you know, I got to got to work at the crusher and, and pump stuff around and, you know, forklift barrels around and, and just be in there tasting and the like. And, and I guess for me, it's always, I've, I've loved the grape growing side, but I always needed that wine connection because if I didn't have the, the connection to a winery, I may as well have been growing potatoes. Um, and so that sort of that connection to the winery continued there for a few years until um, the businesses sort of 
broke up and, and Oak Ridge got sold and um, and then the job at Shandong came up. And for me, one of the key motivating jobs about, uh, the motivating things about going for the job at Shandong was there was a winery again. Um, and I could actually be crafting wines in the vineyard rather than just growing grapes that were being sold to another winery. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly like at that time, you know, Australia was in this, um, a huge expansion and, you know, more vineyards being planted, you know, like that working with Oak Ridge and there being one year old vineyards was not an uncommon thing that was going on. Uh, and you know, the, the, I would think that, um, education would have been booming as well. They were trying to train up as many people to be professionals, um, in, in Australian, in the Australian wine industry. And I have had former guests, probably more so in terms of um, people who worked as winemakers say that, um, the kind of one of the regrets that they had about their studies, uh, and potentially some of their early experience was that they, they were kind of focusing on one thing, like it was either viticulture or winemaking and, unfortunately there wasn't enough education and then they didn't get enough experience early on with with the other so particularly the winemakers were so busy you know they might have been working in large facilities they were just focused on right here's the grapes let's let's you know now we're making the wine and there was a disconnect and there wasn't enough appreciation for everything that was being done in the vineyard and all the important decisions related to that, that was going to contribute to quality. And, you know, if there might've been problems with fruit, that it was more about, well, how can I correct this? And a lot of them have talked about, you know, in subsequent years, particularly those who have um, started their own wine brands, you know, they said, look, I, I really do appreciate it. I, I work a lot harder now with, whether it's growers or with their own vineyards to put in all that hard work there because making the decisions in the winery are so much easier when you know that the hard work and the, the right decisions have been made in the vineyard. So that's, it, it's great that, you know, even though your um, focus, particularly with your studies was in viticulture, that you are really motivated to be able to connect with, with the winery and with winemakers. It, look, it's always been the look, and I guess I've always treated the winery now, whether that's the winemakers I'm working with and the winery I'm working for, or if we're selling grapes to another winery, is the customer. And I guess knowing exactly what the customer wants was really important, and having that really strong connection to the wines that you're producing for me was everything. And I, I think, uh, you know, the, the classic European model is the sort of vigneron who's in the vineyard and in the winery, and, and we see that. A lot of the younger international staff we have coming through to work vintage are very much, you know, they're, they're, um, am I going to do my career in viticulture or is it going to be in the winery? They have that good sense. And I think it's probably something that's let the Australian education system down through that 90s and 2000s that, that were very singularly focused. And it's probably changed a bit these days where you bring everyone together, you know, up to a point, um, give everyone the baseline education, both those fields, uh, and then it's now then you sort of specialise, but maintaining that that connection between the two is is critical. And I think uh, you know for me in my role now, where I'm overseeing both the grape growing and the winemaking um, departments here, and and everything that comes into the winery and then leaves the winery, uh, it's it's critical to have that sort of thorough understanding of of both parts of the business. I'm not a winemaker. Um, I've not studied winemaking. I could probably make wine. I've made plenty of wine 
in my garage, uh, the old carport cabinet, as I used to call it, and I'd make in the, in the Yarra. Um, and, you know, having that very clear understanding of the winemaking process and the impacts, every impact of viticulture on the wine, you know, here with Sauvignon, it's so important to understand the role of nitrogen in the vineyard and what impacts it has on the aromatic thiol content of Sauvignon, for instance, it all gets very technical. Um, but if you get it wrong in the vineyard, there's nothing you can do in the winery. And having that connection is critical. So when you started for, with Chandon, um, you were responsible just for the Greenpoint Vineyard? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So 33 hectares of vineyards there. Um, you know, I, I, it was a role that, you know, I could do relatively easily, but it allowed me to do lots of other stuff. And you talked about the sustainability piece. One of the proudest things I'm, uh, I did at Shandon was, was get involved with Melbourne water and do a whole lot of billabong planting down by the Yarra river. We had all that, that land going down to the river and, um, you know, 15 years later, it's a, it's a, you know, they've got wombats back. They've got all this wildlife down there and it's, it's a really highly appreciated um, piece of wetland revegetation work. And that was stuff that I'd love to do. You know, I guess that fits that sustainability piece, but um, you yeah, know, nice to leave some of those things behind. And then I sort of progressed to a, it became a vineyard operations manager. I was looking after Strathbogie as well. Um, was it, was it nice to kind of be able to focus on that one, that one site initially, but also kind of in, in terms of working with the winemakers um, and and being able to see fruit that was coming in from other sites, whether it be other vineyards in the Yarra Valley or, like you say, Strathbogie or, um, you know, Macedon or the Tasmanian fruit as well, to then kind of transition from working on the one site to managing multiple sites. Was that, was that a really great transition? Yeah, look, and I've done that, I guess. I've been doing a little bit of both at Oak Ridge beforehand. Um, but yeah, certainly one, I mean, making sparkling wine, I'm not going to um, denigrate the process of the vineyard in making sparkling wine, but you know, it's much more process winery driven. Um, and we, we, we do that today here with Polaris at, at Cloudy Bay. Um, whereas what I really enjoyed was the still wine side of things because the, the, the impact of vineyard, I think on still wines is, is much more significant um, with, you know, style and quality and the like. Um, and I learned a lot about the sparkling wine process at Chandon, which is, which has served me well, um, in my time at Cloudy Bay. Um, but what I, I mean, for me, the, the big win was being in the group. And I think Tony Jordan rang me one day and, and, uh, and Tony's sort of dry thing. He sort of said, Oh, Jim, I want you to move to Margaret river. And, um, you know, one of these sort of weird, again, one of these sort of weird ironies is I went to Margaret river in 1995 when I was at uni and, um, went over to Perth for a friend's wedding. I went down to Margaret River and we fished off the off the rocks at Kilcarnup and caught salmon and probably bought some pot in the Settlers Hotel like most people did when they went down there back then. But I, I came back to uni. I remember writing the you know one of those reports about what are you going to do in your third year, and I said I'm going to go and do my work experience at Cape Mentel, um, you know, just because it was the one winery I visited while I was there, and I was captivated by this place, Margaret River. And um, the irony of it was the next time I went back to Cape Mentel. Uh, was 12 years later and I went back uh, with the role of viticulturist um, and then had to learn all about Marga River. But what I loved about moving to, to Margs and, and Kate Mantell was, um, you know, the still wine focus uh, of, you know, being a still winery, 
having a winemaker and, and boss at the time, Rob Mann, who was incredibly quality focused and uncompromising in everything that he did. And me having the, the opportunity to, I guess, change up what we were doing in the vineyards quite a lot um, to sort of meet his ambition um, as an ambitious winemaker. And that was a really great experience. It was, it was three and a half years over there. Um, we made some great wines, made a lot of progress in, in, um, in re-establishing the quality of Cape Mantel in, in the process. And that connection to still wines was something I, I really relished getting back into. That was um, uh, late 2000s, wasn't it? That was sort of... Yeah, it's um, 90, uh, 2000, 2007. Yeah. yeah, 2007. I moved over. I started working just after the 2007 harvest. Uh, I was actually flying back and forth between the Yarra and Margaret River for three or four months. Um, yeah, I remember. Departments in both, both ends, which is... a I stupidly did when I, I accepted and, and did that work between Margaret River and, and New Zealand, actually, when I moved here as well, working for the same company. So, but yeah, no, really relished that time in Margaret River. I learned, a, I guess, loved Cabernet-based wines anyway um, and working with some wonderful old vineyards, uh, making amazing still Chardonnay. It really was, the Chardonnays there were fantastic. And um, probably getting my head around Sauvignon Blanc, which actually laid the groundwork really nicely for my move over here. Well, particularly, uh, you know, the connection obviously between Kate Mantell and Cloudy Bay is Dave Honan and the fact that he kind of founded or co-founded Cloudy Bay with Kevin Judd in 1985. 85? 85. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it was pretty much, it was Dave founded the winery and, mm. and he sort of, stumbled across Kevin at a wine show in, in, in Auckland and, and offered him a job when he, you know, he didn't have a vineyard, didn't have a winery and he made some semion. There's a little, little known fact that there was a Cape Mantel New Zealand semion made in 1984. Um, that was Dave's first go at, at making wine from here, but it was um, the grapes they purchased from the Stoneley Vineyard just up the, up the road that they made the 85 vintage from and trucked them all the way to Gisborne. If you can believe it, the grapes were machine harvested went on a ferry and then drove another eight hours up in sloshing around the back of a truck up to Gisborne to make that first vintage. Seems, uh, seems crazy today. It is quite extraordinary how impactful Dave Honan has been, um, you know, being one of those sort of real establishing wine producers in Cape Mantel and uh, no question really put Cape Mantel, but really put Mug River and particularly Mug River Cabernet on the map by doing something that I don't know if anyone's done um, before or since, which was winning back-to-back Jimmy Watson trophies. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, working with Rob Mann, who at that time was um, considered to be one of the best winemakers in the country. Um, and, um, and, and I think he was, whilst you were there, that he then stepped into that estate director role? Yeah, 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 he did. They, they sort of changed the structure around and he became the sort of, the, the, I guess, the managing director of, of Cape Mantel at the time. Originally, we were both working for Tony. Um, and, you know, Uncle Tones has, has always been sort of hovering around there in the background. And, um, but Rob, Rob was one of those interesting cats where no matter how good your fruit was, he always found something wrong with it, which when presented in a good way, um, presented a really challenging environment for grape growing. And um, I really relished... Uh, that time working for Rob in the fact that no matter how good the wines were and if they'd won trophies at shows and whatnot, he'd go, no, oh, yeah, but if we'd only done this or we'd only done that. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a, it was a good learning curve. 
Was there much of a difference when you're transitioning over um, from uh, Victoria, I guess you would say, to Margaret River, uh, in terms of sort of like the technical aspect, like what, what differences were there, be it viticulture or winemaking, that you kind of had to adjust to when you moved over to Cape Mentel? Uh, you know, Marg's only had two and a half, three thousand hectares of vineyards, and you, then you had, I guess, the heat of of the, vineyard, the traditional vineyard areas in the Swan Valley, and you had the little outpost down in Franklin, and you know, little Pemberton, Manjimup, Great Southern. And it was a little bit antiquated, I'd almost say. They, there were a lot of ideas that had swirled around Margaret River and become regional practice, which weren't, I guess, up to date, I don't think, with what was happening with uh, either globally or in the eastern states. And I, you know, I always think that um, you know, the, the South Australian and Victorian industries were relatively progressive. Um, that said, I think I moved to New Zealand and I found that even the Victorian and South Australian industries weren't that progressive. I was always amazed with the progression and, uh, of the New Zealand industry and its uptake of technology, but we're, we can touch on that later on. But yeah, look, Marg's was a lot of places. There was a lot of people who'd never worked outside Marg's. They'd got jobs and vineyards in Marg's and that's where they'd been and probably weren't exposed enough to ideas on the outside. So I guess I came with a pretty fresh new set of eyes and a, um, you know, and a determination to change a lot of the things that, that had been done traditionally because it was the easiest way or maybe the traditional way of doing it. Mm. Some of the challenges that we had, even things like clonal material, you know, Western Australia is its own quarantine zone. So basically you had just a bunch of what in a lot of cases weren't very good clonal material, no access to new material unless you brought it in by quarantine, which we started to do ourselves eventually. So that's, so you're not able to actually get material from the Eastern parts of Australia? No, as much as you wanted to just ring up, you know, your lumber nurseries and order 10,000, you know, cool Merlot cuttings, um, you know, we were bumbling along with D3 V14, which was just a garbage clone. We'd, I'd grown enough of it in the Yarra to know that it wasn't any good. Well, that, I uh, mean, so that's, that's end, a criticism about a lot of Merlot in Australia is the fact that, you know, a, a lot of it's that is due to bad clone material. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's poor set and it's, you know, a whole lot of problems with Merlot. But, uh, you know, we ended up starting to buy material and then take it into quarantine. You had to put it through quarantine for three years before you could get it out and then multiply it up. So it was a very much a long-term project. Um, and then we turned our mind to Cabernet and importing clones like 337 and some of those better performing, uh, which were becoming the stock and trade in Bordeaux and, and certainly in California. We just didn't have access to the material. So we sort of took the, played the long game there. And, and those vineyard blocks are really just getting up to maturity now uh, over in Western Australia these days. Is it exciting to sort of see um, that development considering, you know, that you were instrumental in, in, in um, introducing that stuff? Yeah, well, ironically, I've never been back. I mean, I've been to Perth a few times for, for, for work over the years, but never had the time to get back to Marg's. And it's their 50th anniversary at Cape Mantell this year. I was pretty keen to get back and I'd, I'd sort of lined up a trip um, to, to Cabernet at Cape Mantell for the 50th anniversary. Um, but, of course, that won't be happening now. So, um, But I really want to get back and, and speak to Dave, I think. And one of the things I've, I've chatted with Dave Honan on and off over the years and just to really sort of get a sense of history and um, of, you know, what he was thinking and, and probably I heard a lot of the stories firsthand because I, I worked with Dave. He was a grower of ours at Cape Mantel uh, while he was setting up McHenry Mc Honan and, you know, doing his pigs and his lamb and all the other bits and pieces. But 
Now, Dave's one of these sort of incredibly dry, laconic characters. Um, and, you know, he's not going to be around forever. Um, and it'd be good to sort of go and download, um, you know, I've got a lot of questions I want to sort of, I can ask him over the phone, but they're much more important questions. They're questions I want to sit around and, and linger over, a, you know, a beer on the terrace at the Settlers and, um, and get a chance to discuss with him. So I'll be planning on doing that whenever I, you know, travel eases up for us all. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, before about the, you know, how progressive New Zealand was um, from a technical perspective. I think, um, you know, the, the Australian thing so much, uh, particularly the, in the 90s and to some extent 2000s, um, in sort of promoting Australian wine was so heavily dependent on on characters, you know, like you, the, these guys would go over to the States and the UK and they had such big personalities and they were so uniquely Australian. And they, they, though Australia and New Zealand um, are very, very similar, there isn't the same kind of gregariousness that there is with Australians, at least, you know, you know, so much about around the marketing and promotion of New Zealand was, and it still continues today is, you know, it is be- it's, you know, beautiful nature and it's wild and, and it's cool, it's cool, cold. Um, that was such a big, big difference between how Australia and New Zealand was promoted. You know, New Zealand was, this is the cool climate, wine producing country um and and you know and in the subsequent years obviously australia's wine has evolved quite a bit and there's a bit more talk about you know um regional diversity and um varietal diversity and and you know wine style diversity as well um having now been based in new zealand are are you sort of seeing a little bit of that coming into the new zealand wine industry yeah, I mean, there's, there's people, it's been an interesting evolution, I guess. I was in the Yarrow and, you know, when when lots of young winemakers, I think about, you know, um, uh, Robbie Hall and and um, it was Gary Mills and those guys all starting up their brands. And it got to Western Australia and there was no one doing that. It was just, you know, normal wine companies. Now there's lots of those smaller players um, popping up in, in Western Australia and other parts of Australia. And that's starting to happen here now. I guess there's there's a big, you know, we New Zealand industry is, you know, for want of a term, it's a bit of a one-trick pony. Seventy-five percent of what we do is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, um, incredibly successful commercially, um, and still ever growing. And just so I was just chatting with some some guys today. I mean, there's seven or eight hundred hectares of vineyards being planted in Marlborough. There's not much land left. I must say, it's a, it's a sea of vines here, but you know, people are still eking out, out in the corners and the fringes to plant more. And the demand never seems to, to let up in, in markets like the US and even the UK is still growing um, throughout Europe. And we are getting some of those smaller players who are now getting, you know, parcels of grapes and starting to do stuff for themselves. And I think as a, as a, as a country, I think Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is a bit of a sort of a generic you know, almost a sort of commodity product for a lot of the, the bigger producers here. When you've got wineries, you know, selling millions of cases um, of some of these wines, they're not quite critter wines and they're not quite at the level of some of the huge Australian producers, but um, they're, they're sort of taking on morphing into that. Um, it's nice to see we, there are people starting to look at, at uh, you know, diversity here in Marlborough. You know, we've almost said here at Cloudy Bay, we've almost done the reverse. We've, we've, 
we'd pulled out Pinot Gris and we pulled out Riesling and Gewurztraminer. And they were making okay wines, but they weren't exciting. Um, and we're much more sort of focused on doing singular things. And I think uh, in New Zealand, it's sort of, it, it, there's, a, there's a split. There's the, um, after 30 something years, you're learning what works really well and you want to do it better in our case. Um, and then you've got other producers who are starting to look at alternatives and playing with different grape varieties. I think about here in, in Marlborough, you've got some, you know, forests who are playing with things like Saint Laurent and um, there's Arneas and there's a bit of Gruner um, being planted around and Albarino and these types of things are different players, different people are starting to work with. Um, but we don't have the history that Australia, the Australian regions have got. So you don't have these sort of, you know, we know that, Shiraz and Cabernet work well in the Barossa and McLaren Vale and, you know, um, you know, you've got Pinot Noir in areas. I think we're still in that sort of maturing phase where a lot of the vineyards are only being, you know, potentially planted for the second time, um, that sort of second phase of plantings uh, as people are removing the last bits of Riesling from the region and, and saying, well, look, you know, Sauvignon's the one wine here that is incredibly distinctive. But then, you know, for us, we've said, well, in the, we want to do the same things, but we want to do them elsewhere. Uh, heading down to Central Otago, ten years to um, start making Pinot down there, and have you know subsequently bought vineyards and and launched a Central Pinot. And you know we're always on the explore through other parts of New Zealand as well to try to find things that are amazing. Um, you know I think Hawke's Bay Syrah is something that I have uh, a little bit of interest in. We've got a couple of barrels of Marlborough Syrah tucked away from the last couple of vintages uh, that were planted on. You know it was. A, Mature vines. It was on a vineyard that we purchased. That uh, you know, myself and Tim Heath, who was our our winemaker, a couple of Australians, we said, "Well, we can't pull the Shiraz out, mate. We need to make some of that." Then we had two crap vintages, and it just rotted on the vine. Um, but you know, nineteen and twenty, we made some some stunning uh, Marlborough Shiraz. So, or Syrah. I should depend on who's in the room as well, what I'm allowed to call it. But you know, really, really interesting wines. But you know, we're starting to think about you know what could be what could be other varieties in this region? Um, you know, could it be Tempranillo? If we get some good clonal material, we've got some stony soils here. It's a relatively early ripening grape variety. Um, and starting to look outside and, you know, think about that long-term. Think about what's happening in the next 30 years and climate change and all those types of things. And is Sauvignon going to be, it will still be the dominant grape variety, but what else is coming in behind it? Um, you know, for us, Chardonnay and Pinot are probably never going never gonna to be off the radar. Um, but what else could we add to that that stable of, of varieties and what could this region, because, you know, there was no, the first vineyards, first Sauvignon vineyards were only planted here in 1978. Um, and it's been a sort of phenomenal rise of a region that were unknown around the world to what it is today. Um, but maybe we'll find something else and we just don't know. And it, maybe it's not here, maybe it's in North Canterbury, um, maybe it's in the hills behind Hawke's Bay. There's still plenty of unexplored terroir in, in, uh, in New Zealand that is yet to be planted and yet to be explored. Mm. So tell me about the, um, the transition from Cape Mantel down to Cloudy Bay. Was it uh, a difficult decision to have with the, with the, the wife and kids? Well, ironically, I came here when I was working at Chandon actually in, in 2007, it was January, 2007. And uh, we came for a look around and, visited the winery and stayed here at the old the old shack which has since burnt down and been rebuilt but um had a look around Blenheim and just you know but at that stage living in Hillsville 
Uh, I remember driving State Highway 63 out to the West Coast as we went to take a bit of a holiday down the West Coast of the South Island and both Nikki and I turned to ourselves and went, we are never moving to that shithole. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and literally four months later, we were living in Margaret River, which you know certainly wasn't a shithole and we, we loved living there. But we found out Margaret River didn't really click for us. We didn't love living there. I think we were sort of tiring after three years and when the phone call came um, to come over here, and it was that was again another rush. We just got back from a trip around Europe and um, got summoned over here uh, with the viticulturist who was you know finishing up on the Friday. I got called on Tuesday morning, and we literally only got off a plane from Europe and were still in Perth on the Monday. Um, flew over here um, and looked at the place again with a different set of eyes. And obviously, you know, Cloudy Bay, we know the success of the business. I, I've been plenty aware and aware of, of, you know, how good the wines were. And I knew most of the people here, which helped as well. Knew the winemaking team quite well. I'd traveled with them a lot. Um, learned, and I guess, about the vineyards and met all the vineyard team when we were here. And when we got here, we sort of went, you know, we're, we're looking at the world through a different lens. We've now got an 18 month old child and Nikki found out she was pregnant with our second when we were here on that trip. And, you know, she'd been driving our daughter an hour and a half to a swimming lesson in, you know, Bustleton or somewhere or other while living in Margs. And we just went, you know what, this would actually be quite a nice place to live with small kids. Everything's five minutes away. Um, I loved the landscape. And I think that one of the things I love here is I, you know, when I come to work or I'm out in the vineyard driving to work every day, the mountains around me sort of ground me. And I think I miss that moving from the Yarra. Um, Margaret River doesn't really have mountains. In fact, West Australia doesn't have really have mountains and having that sort of being sort of hemmed in by mountains on, on three sides here, um, it's very grounding and they're very pointy mountains too. I think that was a bit of a novelty for me. They were so rugged and so new. Well, they're actually um, mountains, which is something we don't yeah, really have proper, in Australia. Proper mountains. <laughs> yeah, 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 rather than round hills. So yeah, it's like the first time I went to Japan and I saw mountains, I was like, oh, those are mountains. I saw rivers. Yeah. Oh, those are rivers. Yeah. Yeah. You see that when you drive down the West Coast, you go, shit, there's another river and another river. I didn't know there were so many rivers in the world. Um, but yeah, coming over here and it just, it, everything just sort of worked and there were, you know, lots of interesting stuff going on and it was the run up to the 2011 vintage and I sort of just jumped in and went, you yeah, know, this is an opportunity too good to, to turn down. So um, that was it. We, we moved over here. That was, I guess I was flying back and forth from October, 2010. Um, we moved here officially in February 2011. Um, I think all our stuff was due to be shipped from Christchurch uh, on the 4th of February to our house up here. And then when they, and they had the massive second earthquake in, in Christchurch and half the fucking city fell down. And oh, yeah, true. Hadn't really thought about earthquakes. You know, we're getting away from bushfires and there's no spiders and no snakes. Um, suddenly earthquakes are on yeah. the... Yeah, yeah. Well, we well yeah, I mean, yeah, you would have been you would have been working at Shandon during those, you know, years and years of drought. Like, so you but you went here for Black Saturday, though. No, no, I'd left left before then. I was in Western Australia for that. But uh, you know, we had that horrible horrible drought in the winter of two thousand and six. I think when we got massively frosted, just as things were starting to flower in the start of October, and that was a bit of a disgusting year. But anyway, we um, coming over here, I think the vineyards were, you know, again, there was heaps of potential, but there was still lots to do. And um, a winemaking team who were chafing at the bit to really drive the vineyards. And I think that, again, that was one of the key things for me is they wanted better performance out of the vineyards. Um, 
and I guess the rest is history. After 10 years, I've actually got citizenship now too, so I'm, I'm properly a quasi. Um, <laughs> and, you know, our vineyard area, we've expanded it by 60 or 70%. We've bought vineyards, we've pulled out varieties we don't want, we've replanted, and we've, you know, moved into the modern era. I've got um, a wonderful tech team who are doing amazing work on, you know, breaking our vineyards down into small parcels and we, you know, we're able to pick things separately and we've got a, an amazing winery with, a, you know, amazing amount of mojo um, to get things off when we need to. We're well resourced. So it's a pretty cool business to work for um, just from a, a fact that you can do things really, really well. I suppose that would have been a really um, different um, scenario for you to have gone from Shandon to Cape Mintel and then to Cloudy Bay where demand was exceeding supply. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, yeah, you, know, uh, you know, Cape Mintel, um, Shandon, like, yeah, okay, demand for sparkling wine just kept increasing, particularly as they moved more into the Asian markets. Um, but, you know, even Cape Mintel, were struggling. There was starting to become a little bit more competition. Whereas the thirst for New Zealand wine, particularly Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, it was just on the up and up and hasn't really slowed down too much, you know, in the last 10 years. No, no, it's, it's phenomenal. I do wonder, you know, and we keep scratching sort of new markets and they just set off like a wildfire. I mean, the U S when I, when I arrived, arrived here, I guess we were about a, a, a one quarter, you used to say we we're a one quarter split around the world. Whereas, Australia, New Zealand was a quarter. Asia was a quarter. The US wasn't quite a quarter um, at that stage. And Europe and the UK was a quarter. Um, and that dynamic shifting, Asia's getting bigger as China's, China will be close to the size of the Australian market um, this year and next. The US is just, it's phenomenal. Like, oh God. I mean, the US is such a huge market that I, I really shouldn't be surprised, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's you know, certainly so much more potential in terms of, you know, the, the population size and the size of, you know, cities and how many cities in the States are over a million people. But Yeah, um, and it, it's very, the US market's a very singular product market. There's still a relatively unsophisticated wine market when it comes to New Zealand wines is, you know, our Sauvignon accounts for about 75% of our, our volume. Um, the US sells 96% Sauvignon Blanc. You know, there's no use sending them Chardonnay because they've got heaps of Chardonnay. They take a little bit of New Zealand Pinot Noir, but usually Americans think about Pinot Noir and they think about Miomi, you know, these sort of inky, black, almost syrupy, Zinfandel-esque wines. Um, or they drink, you know, Oregon, you know, and we're much more in that sort of, you know, Sonoma Coast style, I guess, from, from particularly from Marlborough. Mm. Um, which is really a niche market in the US for, for Pinot Noir. Um, you know, whereas Asia's very sophisticated markets in Hong Kong and Singapore and they drink the full range. Well, like their reference is Europe rather than, you know, in Australia where reference is Australian wine or in the US where to some extent reference is US wine or warmer parts of Europe potentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and then and then China's um, you know very brand focused, and so Cloudy Bay works well as a as a as a brand. Um, but then you know they they're basically going to be a Sauvignon primarily and secondary of Pinot Noir market. Obviously, red wine still 
um, massive in, in China and, and introducing, you know, particularly women to Pinot Noir, I think when, um, you know, the husbands are drinking bigger, bigger red wines, either Bordeaux or, you know, Australian wines, Chilean wines. Um, there's great opportunity for Pinot Noir in, in China. It works super well with cuisine. And, um, and so, yeah, we're seeing that, that develop as well. How, um, particularly uh, in your time as technical director, have you um, continued to enjoy the opportunities afforded to you being part of, um, I, I assume it's still called Estates and Wines, which is part, obviously part of Mount Hennessy, being yep. connected to the Australian businesses, um, being connected to South American-based producers, even you know going over to, to Europe and, and you know, in, of course, Champagne, but, you know, the... Um, Numantia in Spain. Have you been able to um, travel to those locations and gain access and, and some insights into how they're doing things to give you ideas about, you know, what you can do in Cloudy Bay? Yeah, quite, quite I mean, regularly, I'm probably in Europe, you know, I, I say last year, I mean, I was in Europe sort of twice last year and the previous year, I went to Mendoza for the first time, and and um, when I'm in on market travels to the US, I generally uh, are in San Francisco at some stage and try to take a weekend or a few a few extra days up to the Napa and catch up with our team up there as well at Newton and, Newton. and at Chandon as well. Chardonnay. Yeah, yeah, well, it's a little. It's a, I tell you what, it's a it's a rock and roll Chardonnay these days. It's not the uh, it's not the big fat overly oaked and the hundred percent Malo number that we used to. Uh, Holy moly! I felt like it was, pretty, it was it was it um, was enjoying a lovely pineapple crumble. Yeah, yeah, lashings of coconuts and <laughs> and, and and hot buttered popcorn. It's delicious. Oh my god! Yeah, um, you know, and those wines are phenomenal these days. They're picking early. They've changed their vineyard locations. It's, I mean, that's that was Rob's influence going to Newton and basically taking a lot of that Cape Mantel, you mm. know, style and, and wines of freshness and vibrancy, and applying that to Newton. I remember he did a vintage there in two thousand seven, and he used to lament. He goes, "Ah, oh, I wanted to pick the grapes two weeks ago, but they, you know, they just wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me." harvest them until they're 15 and a half percent potential alcohol and then Jeez. i have to bring them to the winery and hose them down and uh, <laughs> the old oh. black snake yeah exactly a bit of cold steam so um yeah he revolutionized those wines and they're looking fantastic today he actually wines we want to drink where well, they used to be a bit of a laughing stock of the group and a similar thing's happened in argentina actually i've been really impressed with the wines um so from terrazzas Terrazzas de los Andes, mm -hmm. um, they've, you know, I guess moved away from those big, heavy sort of Argentinian philosophy. They had a, uh, a technical director come from Bordeaux um, who's picking early and making wines of great finesse. They're juicy and crunchy and, and all the things that Malbec should be. Balanced. Um, rather than sort of heavy and over-oaked and just, ugh, um, you know, not very enjoyable. So yeah, it's been a nice revolution. Even the wines of Nemanthia have... Uh, have freshened and lightened up. Um, you know, when we bought that wine, Termanthia, which was their top wine, used to see 200% new oak. Yeah, um, I was blown away when I went there. Um, I, I mean, even then when I went, um, I thought the wines were, were, were looking a lot better than when um, I, well, back, back when I, um, I was working at Shannon was when they first purchased that business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, particularly the wines of Toro uh, are known for being pretty massive dark wine so it's uh it's it's exciting to see that they've kind of reined it in a little bit i think it was something that uh, well, I, th I thought was not a bad idea for spain in general um, particularly at the top end 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, the top ones out of the Ribera del Rio these days are, you know, got amazing freshness and vibrancy. For me, the, the top, that sort of modern style from Rioja, Rioja Alta, uh, those wines are delicious and they've, they've, they have that sort of vibrancy. They're not that... I remember going to... Um, who is it? Scott, 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 Scott in Melbourne. Scott Spanish Wesley. acquisition. Yep. Yeah, the Spanish acquisition. Going to some tastings of his and, and tasting these wines that tasted like sort of somewhere between Coca-Cola and, and, uh, and coconut and these old um, grand reserves that have been in barrel for six years or something or other. Very old styles, nothing like I'd ever encountered. Um, and there's that sort of old school of Rioja and then there's the new school, which are, you know, making much fresher, more vibrant wines that actually yeah, are wonderfully. It, it's almost like kind of um, a meeting um, in the middle sort of thing where it's trying to celebrate, you know, what, is you know you're getting that out of the fruit particularly now from from those regions that they are warmer and so you're getting bold fruit 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 flavors and and you know plenty of of weight without it being too heavy and alcoholic and and we're sort of bringing back some of the freshness from the more traditional styles and when my last trip i was in uh went to namanthia last june actually we had a conference over there and i discovered a grape variety which i'd never heard of um from from salamanca itself uh called ruffet and ruffet is like a i describe it as the pinot noir of toro it's um these wines that are fresh and vibrant and um sit somewhere between a sort of yeah a ripish style of pinot noir and a you know, Cru Beaujolais, they're just delicious, crunchy oh, numbers. Check it out. Um, and revive these sort of old vines and, you know, sort of vineyards that people have walked away. And I'm assuming they would have just been chucked into some generic red wines and a little bit, I could see, I could see the beginning of a story a bit like, uh, a bit like Menthea where, uh, you know, the wine, those old vineyards in Bizzo had, had sort of been revived and, and, you know, a bit of modern, modern winemaking applied and, and, and have become, you know, delicious, crunchy and, and found a place in the wine world that, um, you know, that would have been lost to, lost to history, I guess, mm. otherwise. You talked about, um, you know, spending time in market. Um, have you um, enjoyed, you know, from way back from your Shandon days through Cape Mentel and then Cloudy Bay? Has it been great to kind of be introducing, particularly some of the newer markets you talked about, you know, in Asia, um, to, to introduce them to those wines and at the same time kind of be able to see how the wines are being enjoyed by who in you know different countries around the world uh and kind of looking at looking at your own what what you do and what the winery does um from from their perspective yeah definitely i think it's been one of the it's i mean certainly as a viticulturist there's, there's not a lot of businesses where you get to i think my first actual proper week at, at Cape Mantel when I was there full time was actually getting on a plane and I landed in Seoul, I think was my first ever market visit for Cape Mantel. No idea anything about Korea or Korea, certainly Korean food. I had no idea at all. Um, and then spent a lot of time traveling in Asia and have since, you know, again, years and years in Asia and, and now doing a lot of work in the US. Uh, I think it's a really important thing to get out and get in contact with the market and understand First of all, what the rest, what the wine world is about, you know, from a from a commercial sense, you know, what's happening, what's what are the other wines out there, what are people drinking, 
and also, you know, how they're appreciating your wines and how they perceive your wines um, in different markets and the different levels of sophistication between different consumers in different markets. Um, you know, I was a bit amazed. I remember the first time going to Taiwan a long time ago and you know, who would have thought there's a massive wine drinking culture and people were incredibly studious and knew heaps about wine in, in, in Taipei. Um, it, it, and people don't realise you know, the Taiwanese uh, have an almost a, a, the same kind of approach to wine and probably a lot of other things that the Japanese do. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're yeah, very sure. diligent and... and um and and respectful and and appreciative of you know more of an artisan kind of um philosophy yeah now we've got a huge i've got a huge range of contacts of people in the trade in in taiwan these days i've probably been back about 10 times over the last 10 or 12 years so um and then you've got the you know the other side of things is the us has been incredibly refreshing to visit as well maybe getting away from this very studious wine world into just you know, people who love your beverages because they taste great. Um, they don't know a huge amount about them, particularly consumers. Um, but even trade, you'd be amazed the trade who've never tasted. I mean, they know Kim Crawford and they know Oyster Bay. Um, but introducing them to Cloudy Bay, introducing them to things like Tococo, you know, opening their first ever bottle of New Zealand Pinot Noir so they get to taste what Pinot Noir's made you know, how it's made and, and what it tastes like from other parts of the world other than, other than, the, um, than the West Coast in the US. Um, you know, and that level of sophistication, a lot of those markets are still pretty, pretty low. Um, but, you know, wine lovers are the same around the world. I mean, basically what they're after is something that's delicious to drink. And, you know, they love it even more if you've got a story to tell with it. And that, you know, that, that doesn't change anywhere around the world. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, is another um, disconnect for wine producers is, uh, you know, a lot more historically, you know, people were uh, about, um, you know, growing good fruit and making good wine. But then it's like, right, now it's your job. Your job is to take it out, whether it was they, they employed a sales force themselves or whether they're working with distributors or importers overseas. It's like, well, it's my job to make the wine. Now you've got to go out there and sell it. And if they were kind of spending time in the market, they kind of weren't particularly experienced or well-equipped to connect with whether it be people in the trade or with consumers. And I think that's another thing that um, more recently in Australia, you know, like I've seen it in Melbourne in particular, where you've got these guys and girls who have maybe had experience in trade or uh, you know um whatever the case may be they are doing a really amazing job at working at how to connect with their their customer base the end consumer and whether it's you know the, the general kind of consumer or a particular segment if they're t if they're sort of deliberately or, or not deliberately going for maybe a younger demographic you know, um, or, or uh, the, the kind of consumers who are into sort of low intervention, sort of funky styles of wine. They, these are the people who are sort of taking things through the whole way. So I, I think that was something that I really appreciated way back when I worked at Chandon um, in terms of sending the winemakers and viticulturists into the market so that they could actually spend time with the, the the sales reps on the road talking to 
you know, the trade and then hopefully the end consumers as well. Yeah, completely. And I, I think when we're at a winery, you, you a, develop a bit of a seller palette because you, you've got to keep telling yourself what you're making is great. Otherwise, you suddenly wonder why you're doing what you're doing. But also, I think, you know, we, we're so engrossed in the wine world that we make things complicated for other people. And ultimately, other people have got 999,000 other things to think about than, you know, was this wine fermented in wild yeast and how much malolactic fermentation it is and they don't really care. Mm. Um, they want to know that it tastes great. And we need to be careful because, you know, ultimately we'll always try to make lots of different wines because it's, oh, we could make this wonderful expression of this terroir and that terroir. Most consumers struggle to know where New Zealand is on a map let alone trying to explain the subregion of a, you know, and for us, and I, I guess our philosophy here at Cloudy Bay is give them the most amazing experience of New Zealand. Um, it happens to come from Marlborough, happens to be grown on a really small part of the Wairau Valley. We're very particular about what we do with winemaking. But what you need to do is give them a bottle of wine that is in essence going to put them on an aeroplane and send them to the, some far-flung part of the world where, you know, I guess it's that, you know, that, that clean and green image and, and that, you know, vision of nature and stuff is, is there. And it's that purity and freshness of the wines, the acidity, it's that sort of mouthwatering nature of, of a glass of Sauvignon that, you know, for me, the wine, you know, and top wine should do this as well for us who are completely nerding out on a, you know, on a Grand Cru Burgundy at the same time, they should transport you to a time and a place um, and, and also the people who made it. And I guess um, that's the other thing is we need to think about is, is trying to communicate a little bit about the people who make it and why they do it. Um, and maybe uh, having worked with, um, with, with Maggie Enriquez, who's the president of Krug and, and Maggie's an amazing wine woman. And she would tell us, you know, people don't want to hear wine, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I used to go out and literally read off it, you know, a tech sheet about how I would communicate with wines. And it's amazing how you adapt to your wine communication speak over the years. Um, you know, I would go out and talk about what percentage of barrel fermentation this wine had undergone and, you know, people's eyes would glaze over. And, and now I actually don't talk about winemaking at all. Um, I talk, certainly talk about the region and what makes this place so unique. Um, and people ask questions if they want to know about, you know, how much new oak is it made with or, you know, where do, you, where do your coopers come from? Um, but people are much more interested in the story. And, and wine, for me, is a story in a bottle. It's a story of a place. It's a story of some pioneers who've overcome some challenge to, to, to bring this wine to you. It's a story of history. It's a story of people's hard graft it's a story of a season of a philosophy of so many things and for those of us who communicate about wine our job is really to to sort of unlock that story um, and give people a sense because basically otherwise it's just a beverage and at Dave Hone and going back to Dave Dave used to say never forget gentlemen it's just a beverage make sure it's a good one and simplifying wine back to that statement I think is always good for me because you remove all the bullshit involved um, and actually make sure you focus on making something that's really bloody good and putting it in bottle and sending it out to the consumers. And then when you do get a chance to talk to them, don't talk to them about the product, talk to them about the stories that are behind the product. And it, it's, um, 
that's that's for me has been, been my big learning in in the wine communications world you know i don't go out there and try to sell wine i couldn't you know care too much for selling it's not my not my kettle of fish but what my where my real value is once they put me on an airplane send me overseas is to go out and just tell stories and to animate that story that's in the bottle for the people who are getting to enjoy it at the end of the day you know you're never going to be the only one in the world to have a certain grape variety you're not going to be the only one who is producing wine in a region anyone can buy the same barrels you use everyone uses the same techniques so that's not the thing that is unique about you if you're trying to convince someone why they should buy your wine instead of someone else's you have to focus on what makes your wine and your story unique so that's something that i've always you know and again i mentioned it before i'm sure the podcast was started to not necessarily have people come on and talk about what they do what their processes and what varieties and clones and what you know like you say all that technical information it's about connecting with someone's story it's, an, it's about connecting with the person because i think that's a much better way for people to connect with a wine because they have that emotional experiential connection and that is what i think is going to hopefully get them to buy the bottle and enjoy the wine more yeah and then you know, buy it again hopefully as well exactly. but you know and, vi- and, vi- and visit you know go yeah, down to yeah. marlborough and visit cloudy bay yeah and i, I don't teach you any of this stuff at wine school you know this sort of stuff as you just experience through experience yeah yeah and you sort of learn it by osmosis and you learn it through you know experience and connecting with other people and 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 you know finding out what their experiences have been and what their stories are yeah and i did the little bit of you know wine communication there's the people who have the major impact and i and i nerded out i was lucky enough to pour our wines at the wine spectator um big event in new york last year and I had to sort of do one of those like little weedy nerd out nerding things where you, I wandered around to the Italian section and I wandered up to Angelo Geyer and said, oh, hello, Angelo, you won't remember me, but we did a masterclass in Japan in 2007 together. And I have never been so entranced by someone speaking about wine. You didn't once mention wine, you didn't even talk about wine. You just talked about life and you talked about culture and you talked about history and you talked about passion. And I said, I, you know, and I sort of went, I learned so much during that listening to you speak. Your wine was unbelievably good and I've taken every opportunity to drink it ever since. But um, yeah, but he was one of those people who could just speak and some people can do that incredibly well. Um, you know, I think if you could try to emulate, you know, the way he speaks about wine by not talking about wine, if you can get the wine communication across and never mention wine, you, you, you've learned well. I agree. Or you just have it naturally. Yeah. That helps too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim, it has been um, fantastic to catch up. It's been great to kind of hear more about your story as someone um, that I worked with and, and, you know, like obviously my time at Shandam was a very influential period for me. I wouldn't still be working in the industry if I hadn't had that experience. So um, thank you. Uh, it's great to see you so well situated down in New Zealand and you're you know, much lucky at the moment that um, you can have some semblance of um, at least COVID normal life. Um, would you like to share where people can find out more about Cloudy Bay? Um, you know, any social media accounts you, you can share? 
Yeah, oh, look, we've got an Instagram account. You might see me and some of my fellow colleagues have been doing some sort of more fun stuff on uh, Instagram and Facebook in, in uh, recent times. And just search, you just Google Cloudy Bay, I guess, um, and our website. But uh, I think there's some events that we've done some sort of more interesting sort of people sort of stuff on Instagram and and, uh, and Facebook in, in the last sort of 12 months. Um, get a bit of a story, some of our Instagram stories. I was posting some stuff on um, during Vintage, doing a bit of, you know, socially distanced uh, COVID vintage uh, updates for people around the world, which you might be able to find as well. So um, otherwise, Google me and uh, my LinkedIn um, account. I was posting a bit of stuff on that as well, which I've had a bit of fun stitching a few videos together and having a bit of a play. So yeah, get on and check it out. Awesome. And yeah, look, at some point, who knows when that'll be, but I look forward to actually um, being able to finally catch up again in person. Well, James, appreciate it. And uh, a little bit of uh, my little bit of Māori is kia kaha, which is uh, stay safe. <laughs> and as always, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can find out um, more about myself. Um, you can see some um, writing that I've done, uh, different videos on my website, intrepidwino.com. You can also follow me on social media at intrepidwino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, you can find out more about the podcast uh, on the website, of course, but also you can uh, subscribe on any number of different platforms or apps, um, iTunes, podcasts, um, Player FM, Stitcher, um, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, soon it's going to be on Amazon Music, I, I think, or Google Podcasts. Um, subscribing means you get the new episode as soon as it becomes available, but also um, there might be the opportunity to leave a rating and review, which uh, is really valuable um, for me to uh, get the podcast to more listeners. So please do um, spend five minutes uh, just leaving a rating and a review. Uh, it's also fantastic to hear from um, the listeners uh, and also for the guests who generously donate their time to be on the show. Um, of course, um, I've got lots more episodes um, coming up uh, and uh, I really uh, appreciate everyone getting in contact with me. You can do that via uh, the email, thevincast the at gmail.com. Uh, but guys, until next time, bye. Bye.